I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. It's not enough to send our young black men to college. We have to ensure that they have a support system they can lean upon once they're there. We spend so much time, money, and energy for young black men to attend schools of higher education. What are we doing to guarantee their success? This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. Obtaining a college education is a dream for many young black men and their families, especially those from working class homes, living paycheck to paycheck, who want nothing more than to see their sons do better than them. While often obtaining a college degree is a pathway towards economic mobility, the sad reality is just because we send our young black men to school doesn't mean they're guaranteed to graduate. At predominantly white universities, where black representation is less than 5% of the student body, the traps of loneliness, isolation, and self-doubt are always present. If they're lucky, they find support amongst black peer groups of fraternity brothers, teammates, and student organizations. If they're not, they struggle in silence and alone until it's too late. Predominantly white universities spend an abundant amount of money and resources recruiting black talent. But what's the point if they're not systems to ensure they succeed and graduate once they're there? To discuss this issue with me, as well as our experience as young black men in higher education, I invited on the podcast my longtime friend and assistant college professor at Northern Kentucky University, Dr. Jared E. Drury. Jared and I grew up in Bryan College Station, Texas, commonly referred to as the BCS. We became friends after finding ourselves as the only two black males in our advanced placement classes. Upon graduating high school, Jared went on to attend Texas A&M University, where he received his bachelor's and his master's before obtaining his PhD in educational leadership from the University of Louisville. Jared knows more than a thing or two about the challenges faced by young black men attending college. His research interests include retention, graduation, and overall success of black males at historically white institutions, as well as how race, racism, and racial battle fatigue impact minorized populations in college. It's a privilege being able to share this platform with my brother, given how far we've both come. We discuss the importance of black peer groups on college campuses, the role universities play in facilitating black success, and how many of the lessons learned still need to be applied once black men matriculate from school into the real world. This is an enlightening episode with an old friend. And as always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me. And I hope you enjoy the following show. And circle back to your hood and teach them youngsters to do it. Do it. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of the legendary Confessions of a Native Son with yours truly, the one and only Iron Mike Stedman. Man, I'm super excited today because I have a friend from my hometown in Bryan, Texas. And one of the things I'm really excited about is uh, the opportunity to share my platform with someone I respect, someone I grew up with, and uh, someone I'm actually really just catching up with by even having them on the show. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today, uh, Dr. Jared Drury. Jared, welcome to the platform, man. 
Man, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I'm elated. I'm excited to be here uh, to share this platform with you and just to catch up. It's been it's been a while. Yeah. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and I'm going to do a little backstory of how we uh, came to know each other. OK, sounds good. So my name is Dr. Jared Elliott Drury. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the, the Northern Kentucky University. I uh, currently reside in Cincinnati, Ohio. And like Mike said, uh, I'm originally from Bryan, Texas, uh, right next to College Station, Texas, home of Texas a University, Giggle Maggie's. Uh, so I attended Texas a for my bachelor's as well as my master's. Uh, and then I received my PhD from the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, I was thinking about before we jumped on here, man, how powerful do you think this situation is? We got two young, two young we're still relatively young, black men you know, from Bryan, Texas on here, both educated, both graduated with our degrees and stuff. And, you know, I think our moms will be very, very proud of us. Absolutely. They would. It's powerful, man. I am. I'm glad to be here on this platform, but especially, you know, being that we're, we grew up together, you know, we went to high school together um, and we've stayed in touch since then. Uh, and we are, you know, young, gifted and black. So, you know, we're a threat. But it's it's so powerful, um, you know, to 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 be in the spaces that we're uh, we're at in life right now. Um, the privileges, you know, the opportunities that we've had. You know what I was thinking about was um, when I think about how we connected, right? When I first met you, because in Bryan, right, where I'm from, Bryan College Station, y'all. You know, when I was decided I want to go to the Naval Academy, my mom was working at the high school, and she was like, "You want to go to Naval Academy? We got to get you in AP classes." And I didn't necessarily have the grades to go to AP classes, you know, but my mom was like, yo, he's going to AP classes because he's going to the Naval Academy and it's a requirement. And I remember that's when I think I came across you for the first time of just, you know, black faces in white spaces, because when yeah. we were coming up, you know, there weren't a lot of us in those classes. True. I can think of a handful <laughs> that were in those classes. And so it automatically puts you in this sense of like, I might not really know this guy like that, but we're just kind of kind of looking out for each other. It was me, yeah. you. I think her name was Tamika uh, yeah. and a couple others that just kind of had that that kind of circle. And uh, yeah. that's how we really got connected, man. And, uh, you know, I think back to those times. Right. Like, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I kind of find myself in this space now where, you know, I'm educated. Right. The masters, all this kind of stuff is like almost expected around my peer group, you know. But back in the day, man, it was just like such a big deal when you were like graduating high school, let alone going to college. Right. Yeah. And I think that that just speaks to, you know, um, the place that we're from and, you know, the fact that, you know, a lot of people weren't introduced and, you know, uh, weren't college educated folks. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, in, in a sense push something and celebrate something that, you know, you aren't as familiar with, you know, uh, my family, they weren't college educated, but they knew because of their circumstances that it was important for me to go and get a college education. Right. So although they hadn't gone to college, they were from day one saying you, you have to go to college. So I, I knew that while it wasn't from from my peer group perspective, uh, peer group perspective, it wasn't celebrated. You know, it wasn't talked about and promoted. But my family's like, 
you're going to college. There's no no ifs, if ands or buts about it. Yeah, no, definitely from my, you know, my mom, your mom always were pushing us to go to school and everything. Um, but I think too, man, I don't know if you can relate to this, but do you feel like back when we were coming up, right, that education was kind of, maybe you just answered this, but education was, I don't want to say that it was a look down upon to be smart, but it wasn't something necessarily like, again, celebrated for us as like black men because our high school was, you know, it was like football, basketball, track. And I mean, nobody was really creaming off of us because, uh, you know, we're smart in the classroom. I wasn't really that smart. I was just in the room, you know, but just this sense of like, you know, uh, education wasn't, uh, I don't know, not necessarily respected, but celebrated. Well, I think you have to have to think about, you know, education and uh, what takes place in our society. You know, when you have a system um, our uh, educational system that does not celebrate, does not embrace, does not welcome blackness and, you know, black people. Um, it's, you know, it, it's hard to want to get in that space and be in that space and, it, you know, and think that you could thrive in that space. So, you know, it, it, I get it why, you know, education may not have been pushed like we wanted it to uh, back then. Right. But, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, that education is not important and it's not, you know, a tool to get you, um, you know, to, to get you more education and, and, and open up more doors in life. It's not the only way, um, but it, you know, for me, it's, you know, it, it is one way to do that. One thing that uh, I remember most about Jared, y'all, was uh, we we grew up Bryan College Station, went to Bryan uh, High School, we, right? Go. <laughs> the BCS. <laughs> and Jared was, I mean, Jared was always smart, always sharp. But when it came time to graduate, you know, I was going off to the Naval Academy prep school. A lot of people didn't know what that was. They were like, Mike Stedman, you going to the Navy? I was like, no, I'm trying to go to the Naval Academy. But it matter. But Jared was going off to Texas A&M University. And the reason that was a big deal and it's something I think about now is, you know, Texas A&M was our backyard, literally. Right. And I'm sitting here thinking from our graduating class, right? We probably had, what, 1,200 people probably around that? Um, we we ended up with around 900. Around 900. A little over 900. But when you think about the number of black males that went on to go to A&M, which is literally in our backyard, right? There was probably... You count them on one hand, you know, and I'm thinking about, man, like, and I think that was just a testament to where you were at mentally. I remember that being a big deal of, you know, at least having a few out of the graduating class going to take advantage of this world class university. Yeah, well, um, you know, my mom, she worked at Texas A&M University and she was pushing me, you know, pushing A&M on me from as early as I can remember. Um, and I can remember being when I when I got to uh, to Bryan High as a freshman, um, I wanted to go to the University of Texas. I, I wanted to get away from home. You know, it, like you said, it was in our backyard. And so for me, it wasn't really like I was going off to college. I was literally going you know, down the street. And so I wanted to, you know, have that experience of getting away from home and, you know, just living in a new city. Um, my dad lived in Austin. And so, you know, it was an opportunity for me to, you know, to go live in the city um, where my dad was and to, you know, to be closer to him. Um, but as I started, 
you know, looking at into Texas A&M and the University of Texas, Texas A&M just made more sense for me. Uh, you know, and <laughs> I, I'll never forget. I we went. Uh, Mike, do you remember the the HBCU tour that we? we I didn't the, go with y'all, but y'all went to it, you know? and I still remember y'all came back. Y'all were uh, like North Air, North Carolina A and T is lit. Y'all North came. Carolina A and T is where I wanted to go. I yeah. saw you know all the HBCUs on that trip. Um, Howard, you know Xavier, all of these different um, these different HBCUs. And uh, North Carolina A&T was where it was at. Like yeah. it was, it was jumping when we went on campus. Uh, but my mom was like, when I got back home, I was like, no, that's too far. We don't have any family in North Carolina, so yeah, no. Uh, so I ended up going to Texas A&M University, and um, you know, it it was a good experience. Um, you know, I, I got an, a, a great education. I think. Um, you know, if I had it to do over, um, I would have definitely went to an HBCU uh, just to start out um, because I think what what I've seen and what I've learned um, now is that HBCUs are special places, man, um, and they're they're so undervalued and um, so underestimated. Preach. I want to get a, a couple of HBCU presidents on here to talk about it because I have not gone to HBCU, but you better believe I'm a fan of them um, because yeah, I understand yeah. the importance of them having come through, you know, my journey and just yeah. this power of like a black peer group. You're part of my black peer group. We didn't even know it at the time, you right. know, but we're fighting all these cultural forces that like we're basically feeding off each other's energy, you know, a little bit because I know when I would go back home from leave and all this kind of stuff in Texas, while you were still around AM, you know, you would invite me out with you, you know, to with your friends. Um, but like I didn't, I, there was really nobody else there, not at AM, not like that, that I felt like I could, you know, talk to or relate to if like this college experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first <laughs> uh experience I got with with um a group of black college educated men was um, was when we uh, the alphas at Texas A&M had go to high school, go to college. Um, And we went to Texas A&M and it was a a totally different experience. Right. than what we had seen when we were going to Texas A&M on, you know, on these random trips, uh, you know, across town to see the campus. Uh, But when I saw, you know, all those guys, that was the most. amount of uh, black college educated brothers that I had seen ever. Um, I think I had maybe, maybe seen like one or two, um, but, but all, be, them being all together uh, was just, it was really powerful. Now, were you an avid with me? Were you an avid? I was not an avid. No. Uh, so I was in a program called y'all. Uh, I was in a program called advancement via individual determination. Essentially I was labeled as an at-risk youth. Cause I grew up without a father, still didn't have one, still never met mine. Uh, but I, my mom worked at the high school, but this was a program to help get, you know, young men like me to basically matriculate in the college and females. And so I was part of this program, but for some reason, Jerry, I remember you at like speaking events and like, I know a lot of my peers in the group went on that HBCU tour. And I just remember, man, <laughs> y'all came back. Y'all were like, I'm, we're going to North Carolina A&T. That's a little school. I didn't know anything about North Carolina A&T, but y'all came back. And I told my mom, I was like, I want to go to A&T. And so we started looking at it and we're actually going to go down there and visit. We didn't make it all the way. Gotcha. Yeah, man, it was, 
again, it was uh, the the campus was just electric. Uh, it it that was one of the first times that I had seen blackness on display like that unapologetically. Right. Um, it, it was just, it was just magical. Before I give our uh, before we keep moving, I give my confession. I want to let y'all know. I came back from the Naval Academy and I had crossed Omega Sci-Fi. So I'm all about the frat, whatever, you know, like a Neo, you know how we are. But I remember, I remember you being up in the air, but maybe you just weren't talking about it. But I don't remember, I remember you pre-alpha, you know, pre-before you, you know, you went um, across yeah. the sands. So, so going back to, you know, to that, that, um, trip when you know that go to high school go to college uh the, the program that we were a part of uh i knew then that i would i didn't know anything about black greek life you know i didn't know anything um you know not having family who were college educated uh i didn't know you know i had seen um i had seen you know some some I saw people, black people on like the Cosby show and, you know, here and there on TV, you know, with these letters and, you know, these uh, these Greek letters on their chest. But I didn't really know, you know, what it meant. So when I saw the Brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated uh, at Texas A&M's campus, you know, doing go to high, go to high school, go to college, trying to get youth in the area, you know, to come to Texas A&M to, to go to college. Um, that was just really special to me. And so I knew while I didn't say anything and, you know, I, I was still kind of trying to figure it out. Um, I knew that if I was going to, you know, get involved with anything in college, it was going to be uh, Alpha Phi Alpha. Makes sense, man. I think about some of the counselors, you know, Eric Watson. I didn't even know what this, remember, we didn't really know what this stuff was because nobody was really right. teaching us, but we right. just knew he just moved different. Right. And then you get older and you find out that like black Greek just moving. It makes sense that they're like out with the youth or teaching something or whatever. It's just because it's who we are, man. I'm excited to talk to you more about that. But uh, let's go ahead and jump into the confession and uh, I'll go first. Right. Um, One of the things I'll tell you, I actually got two confessions today because of your background in education. And I actually read your dissertation. um, And you can tell them the title of and everything. But my first confession is I'm starting to lose. I've lost confidence in the public education system to ed- properly educate uh, black men and fem- black men and women. All right. And yeah. I've talked about this on multiple times over the course of this show, but uh, I might even re- repeat myself on it. But uh, we'll talk about why as we continue going on. But it's just essentially it's just like, you know, I'm reading your dissertation and you're talking about the importance of the black peer group. And, you know, having people on campus look after you and everything. And then the more I read that kind of stuff, it's like, man, whose responsibility is this? You know, the idea that these spaces are going to ensure that we are connected and that people are pouring into us, our cultural identity, you know, and I just don't feel like that's the responsibility of institutions that necessarily aren't African-American or black institutions. And so I just kind of think about public education you know, I think about some of these universities, too. Um, and it goes back to why I am a fan of like the HBCU model. Just this idea of being around other black educated people that are all trying to move in the right direction. Man, there's just power in that. So that's the yeah. first confession. But even okay. though I say that, even though I say that, right, my second yeah. confession is I deep down, I still need to attend Texas A&M University. 
right? <laughs> like it, it, it's something like, I don't know if I'll be like a hundred years old and I'll go get a degree or something, but for y'all don't understand, man, I grew up, you know, very similar to Jared, honestly, you know, um, single parent home in Texas. We grew up in an environment where everybody was raised by their grandma, their auntie, their uncle, just not a lot of positive male figures around when you think about it. And here's this Mecca of a university that I didn't even realize how prestigious it was until I left, you know, just in a sense of like, everybody knows about A&M. And I found out that people go there for like generations, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Aggies, Mm -hmm. you know, and for us, it's like, man, this thing was right in our backyard, you know? And so for me and my mom actually was going to school there, um, but she never finished her PhD there in education. And so it's almost like this bucket list item for me, just about like, it's part, I don't know. It just reminds me of home too. I think when I yep. think of home, I think of A&M. And so that might be a reason why I want to get that stamp at some point. Yeah, I, I get it. You've, you've talked to me a lot about, you know, over the years, uh, how you wanted to, you know, it was a dream of yours to attend Texas A&M. And I, I, I'm in support of it. I say, you know, it's never too late. Um, so just make it happen. What about you? What's your confession? So my confession is... Black women deserve much better. Details. Go into details for us. You know, I think that we live in a in a in a country and a world that um, marginalizes black women, um, diminishes black women, um, makes black women have to prove themselves. Um, and have to have to prove themselves, but also have to save um, <laughs> black men, um, the black family, uh, our, our <laughs> the Democratic Party um, elections. You know, um, it, it's like we diminish black women, but we also at the same time, simultaneously, we expect them to carry you know, the load um, of of so many other people just really not doing their, their job, not doing the work um, to, to make it, make our world, our country a better place, you know, for everybody currently and, as well as the next generation. What led you to so make this so revolution? For that, for that, for those reasons, and because Black women are just so magical, they deserve much better than we, than what we give them. What made you come to this realization to the point where you're speaking out about it? Because I'm, I'm kind of at the same point myself as well. You know, Mike, um, like you said, growing up in a being raised by a black woman, um, seeing the struggles that she went through, she endured, um, as well as, you know, my granny and my aunts, um, just seeing the sacrifices that they made, the, um, the opportunities that they weren't given. Um, and, and how that impacted their life. And, and while they were trying to, you know, give the, give me the world, um, you know, they, they ran into a bunch of hardships and, you know, it was very few men around, um, who were helping them, you know, to, to raise me, me and others, right. And our, in my family, my cousins. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, my intro, if you will. Um, and then when I got to my master's and my PhD programs, um, it just started learning about, um, 
the plight of black women and, you know, histo- historically, um, all that they've had to go through, you know, and how um, they've just been underserved and, and just marginalized in, in so many ways. Um, it, it made me really um, come to see my own privilege, you know, as a, as a black man, um, the, the privileges that I have that black women are not, you know, afforded. Um, and it just made me, um, as I started reading folks like Audre Lorde, Patricia Hill Collins, like, um, bell hooks, you know, I'm reading these, these prolific women, um, basically talking about, you know, um, black feminism. Um, and then it, it, it became, it, it got to a point where I was like, okay, so what, like, what's my place in all of this? What's, you know, what's my role in, um, helping make the, the black, uh, the experience for black women, um, be much better than, than what we, what we give them. Right. So, that's kind of been my journey to, you know, to uh, understanding the plight of black women and, and understanding and loving and embracing them, uh, which I always have. But, you know, once you when you when you learn and you read about um, just the, the different experiences um, of black women in this country and, and in the world, uh, it just makes you have a new appreciation. Right. I think we're going to have to get uh, Jared to come back on and have a whole conversation talking about black women in higher (laughs) education, because here's what I'll tell you, Jared, you know, when I think about that, right, I've always reflected on these times where I've been the only black male in a space. Right. And then as I get older, I started looking, I'm like, damn, I'm like a guy. Right. So at least I'm supposed to be mentally, physically just strong. Right. Not trying to be gender or anything crazy, but you know what I mean? But I think about, man, no matter how rough I had, if I was the only black guy in a situation, imagine being a black female. You know, and I started to think back about elementary school, you know, the only black girl in the class getting made fun of people making fun of her hair, you know, and I wasn't the one defending them like I should have, you know, or you think about, you know, young women that we grew up with, you know, if you're not, if you're for a guy, if you're not an athlete, you know, a black guy, you're not an athlete, you don't have academics, like, what are you doing with your life, right? How are you proceeding? If you're a female, you know, what options do they really have? You know, and so I start to think about that. And it's like, damn, man, it really did hit me in the sense of like, we don't do the best job of looking after our black females. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I would push back just a, a, a little bit and say, you know, they have the opportunities, you know, that the opportunities are out there, right? right. Um, it's just making sure that there's no uh, barriers and no, you know, extra hoops uh, for them to to jump through, um, to get to, you know, those opportunities. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing. And, uh, before we, uh, continue with the conversation, I got to shout out to our sponsor, Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Shout out to the team out in Atlanta. Be sure to check out www.realdope.coffee. Place your order today and show Mike and his company some love. It's black owned, it's veteran owned, and is the epitome of economic empowerment. Also need y'all to head over to confessionsofanativeson.com to sign up for our newsletter. If you're interested in having me speak at your organization, just click the link on our website and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. 
or if you're interested in coming on the show, uh, just shoot me a message as well. And uh, excited to continue uh, sharing this platform with you all and just stay updated by signing up for our newsletter. All right, we're jumping into the theme of today's show. I know we we're a little bit slower getting started, but listen, man, it's not every day I get Jared on here. And so, uh, like I say about this podcast, man, this podcast is a conversation uh, amongst people of color and people I invite on my show, you know, and, uh, you know, you guys are just guests sometimes. And so this is one of those opportunities. But, uh, you know, in all reality, though, Jared is very sharp. And one of the reasons I wanted him to come on the show is because we're going to tackle this theme of black men in higher education. And I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let him tell you a little bit about his research and his dissertation, and then uh, we'll have a good conversation about it, all right? So Jared, you got the you got the platform. All right, man, thank you, thank you. And, and thank you again for having me. Um, so this topic of, of black men in higher education is, is very near and dear to my heart. Um, having my own experiences, right, from Texas A&M University to the University of Louisville, um, being a black male, uh, one of the only, you know, in, in certain spaces, um, as you said earlier, you know, one, one black face in, you know, in this white space. And so, um, I started to, so when I came into Texas a I started to see black men who came in, um, uh, in, who were in my class after a semester, a year, they weren't at the university anymore. And, you know, I knew that I had my own struggles academically, um, just, you know, not really knowing how to navigate the university, not really knowing all the resources that were available to assist me. Um, back then, I was working a 30, 40 hour job, um, you know, to offset some of the cost of attending a And so... You know, I started to see that, you know, this is this is an issue like black men are are we, we're getting accepted. We're being accepted into, you know, this this university, but we're not we're not excelling. We're not, you know, not. And, and that's not to, to say everybody wasn't excelling. Right. Because, you know, there there were um, brothers who were definitely excelling. But um, I was, you know, just just seeing fewer faces. And so, you know, I, I was thinking, what, you know, what is that? Um, what was causing us not to do well here? Um, and so then when I, I graduated undergrad, um, I found mentors who were friends, uh, who were graduate students, um, who also attended my church, who were invested in me. Like they were invested in, in wanting to see me succeed. Um, and so that's really, you know, one of one of the the factors that um, changed my trajectory and helped me be successful and graduate. And so I got a job as an academic advisor and uh, started uh, working on my master's degree. And so I was seeing this, seeing the issue from the other side. Now I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the data. I'm looking at the research. What does it say about, you know, uh, black, the experiences of black men in college, in undergrad? Um, I was servicing and, and um, advising black men who were struggling, you know, in college. And so uh, I know I'll never forget. Um, I was talking to my mentor, Dr. Alvin Lark, uh, who was. Um, just a prolific uh, out, uh, trailblazer at Texas A&M. And uh, he said, you know, 
you you're curious about, you know, and you've seen this from your lived experience. So you need to do something with this. You have to now that you are in the know, you know, what are you going to do with this information? And so he was like, you have to go on and get your Ph.D. You have to, you know, I want to see you in the classroom and in spaces where you can um, make change to this issue that, you know, you've been observing um, and, and witnessing. Right. So uh, that's really how I came to um, wanting to do this research and wanting to you know, become faculty uh, so that I could do research on black men. And so. Um, as I started to look at the the data, the statistics, um, you know, seeing the 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 low numbers of graduation and success rates among black men uh, was just it was just baffling to me. And so that's how I got to this this place of, um, you know, this this research topic of of looking at the collegiate experiences of black men in undergrad. Um, and, and trying to identify the factors that um, are hindering, but also helping, you know, black men be successful. What's helping allowing us to get through uh, the pipeline, you know, um, and, and minim- doing that while minimizing the barriers, the impediments to success. Yeah. So that's that's a little bit about how I came to this research topic. And so my dissertation centered around that theme of um, looking at programs, retention programs um, that are that are aimed at black men specifically. And I wanted to know these programs were starting to pop up, starting to be very popular on college campuses, particularly historically white campuses. Um, like, so your Texas A&M's, you know, your, your, your spaces like that, where, um, we weren't allowed to attend, you know, in, in their inception. And so I wanted to look at these programs, these black male retention programs to identify what about these programs was helping black males be successful. What, like, what, what were the, the aspects um, of these programs that were helping us, you know, succeed. And so I did a multi-case study of three black male retention programs. Um, I did focus group, uh, focus group interviews with the men that were involved in these programs. And, you know, I, I essentially asked them what allows you, what about this program, um, you know, is, is allowing you to be successful. And so they, um, names a bunch of different things that were um, were helpful in those programs um, and really promoted and supported their success. What were some of the things that they mentioned? Uh, so they mentioned um, barbershop talks was one um, one of the aspects of across all three programs that allowed them to come into into a space, bring their full authentic selves, um, to be affirmed culturally, you know, for them to display their blackness, live in their their blackness without critique and gaze of of anyone. Um, And they were just able to be themselves, talk about what it means to be a black man in the United States. Uh, 
what it means to be a black man on their campus, um, to talk about, you know, uh, it, mass incarceration, um, you know, things that anything that impacts black men and women that, you know, they were they were um, doing talking about uh, doing joint programs with black women. Um, to, to figure out how they can unite on their campuses uh, with other black folks to make sure that they were successful, you know, and to, to bring about change on their college campuses. And so that was one, having mentors, um, you know, from, from older educated black men, um, from their peers who, you know, were upperclassmen, um, and had been, you know, freshmen and sophomores. Um, yeah, those are some of the things that they they talked about. Um, they talked about being able to connect with all the different resources on campus. You know, all three of the, the campuses that I went to um, were medium to large universities. And so, you know, it was easy for them to get kind of lost and to not know, you know, not being college educated, not to not fully know how to navigate um, and tap into those resources uh, that the university had available for them. As someone who's looked at the male retention, black male retention in college universities, how dismal is it outside of, I mean, I just, what, like, really, what are we dealing with with regards to it? Um, you know, I would say if you, if you look at, um, grad, well, if you look at college enrollment um, of black men, um, over one third won't won't make it. I'll tell you, you know, I asked this question, but I kind of already know the answer, right? Because I'm going to use Texas A&M as an example, and this is how my brain has kind of always worked, right? So at the time you're going to Texas A&M, I think African Americans accounted for what three percent. Uh, yeah, it was, it was around three, yeah, three to 5%. Yeah. Three to 5%. So now I started to ask myself, okay, black man, you know, African-American students, three to 5% at Texas A&M of that percentage, how many are recruited athletes? You know, probably about half, maybe more than half. Yeah. It, it, it just depends on the, you know, on the campus. Um, and you know, if, if uh, college sports, you know, how big the profile is there um, that, that, you know, that kind of dictates how many, uh, you know, our, our student athletes. Um, but yeah, I, I would, you know, I would argue that <laughs> college, black college student athletes have some of the same experiences. No, I'm right? sure. Yeah. But I just say that to say, you know, people have this, they, everybody's like, oh man, we've progressed so much. We've progressed so much. But you look at a lot of these spaces, there's not that many of, not like you would imagine. You start running the numbers, you know, it's like, okay, how many are recruited athletes? Okay. That's about half right there. Of those, you know, how many are males? You know, I know yeah. for me, when I was going to the Naval Academy, which is a, you would call a PWI, right? The number of black midshipmen there that weren't recruited athletes, right? That were males. There wasn't, I mean, you could count us on one hand, really, you know? And so there's all these little different demographics you start to look at and you realize like, man, we're really, there's really not that many of us. And then if it's not for people like me and you having these conversations, you know, how can we move this ball forward? Right. Because yeah. I, I think a lot of these institutions, sometimes they get 
And not even just our institutions, our peers, they sometimes get comfortable. You know, they think that, um, you know, we're thriving in these spaces a lot more than we really are when you look at the statistics. And, you know, you talk about even just getting to graduation. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, uh, this is not for all, right? We can't generalize. Um, but I believe that higher education has a, has it bad for, you know, doing a lot to recruit black folks, black men and women to come to college campuses, but they don't do as much work when it comes to making sure that those environments are spaces where we can be supported, where we can feel like we belong, um, where we, you know, can, can thrive. You know, it's, it's like they do a lot of work to get us there. And then once we're there, it's kind of like, oh, here you are, you know, just, you know, you're on your own to, to make it and to survive. Um, and, you know, we, what, what scholars who, you know, who, who look at the issues facing uh, black men and women on college campuses, you know, particularly at historically white institutions, we know that there are, you know, resources that, um, and things that, that are needed to support black students um, and to, to, a lot, create a space, right, where we can we can do our best, where you know that that potential can really come alive. What do you say to people that read your research and say, okay, mentors, you know, having other people that look like them, study groups, all that kind of stuff, right? They look at this and they say, well, it sounds like common sense, and it's not like we're creating anything new because before, you know, I hate to say this, but even before integration, you know, that was just it was understood, you know. There were these, it wasn't there. You had safe spaces around other black people because that's all you could do. But for some reason, it seems like at times we just kind of lost this sense of what does success really look like? And how do we ensure when we're in these spaces that we're not there to just survive, but we're there to thrive and we have stuff to ensure that we're able to do so. Yeah. Well, when, you know, when you, <laughs> one of the things that I've learned about higher education and our educational system in general is that, you know, when you are having to be focused on uh, numbers and, you know, getting, uh, as a lot of people say, butts and seats, you know, you you can lose sight of the things that it, uh, that it takes to help those butts be successful and to stay in those seats. Right. And so um, I think that, that we get we get sidetracked um, and we you know, we, we haven't known, we haven't cared to know in some, some instances, um, how folks are doing on our college campuses. And that's where we've fallen short. Um, we've, you know, we've done a lot to get them there and we haven't done our due diligence to make sure that they stay on our college campuses. And sometimes I wonder though, do you think, you know, we've both gone to very prestigious universities, got our degrees and everything, but do you think sometimes we kind of, walk ourselves in these spaces. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot, like spend so much of our life, find ourselves occupying spaces and saying, we want better this, we want better that, we want better this, instead of basically taking advantage of spaces that are already in that way. You know, going back to, like you said, the HBCUs, you know, this idea of like, you can come there, you can go to college, right? You have these spaces where you can be yourself versus, you know, going to these other universities and institutions and like, 
damn near begging them or demanding that they create spaces for us. And I know that might sound a little radical, but I'm just curious to hear your your perspective. Yeah, so I think that, you know, definitely, I, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, we we should take advantage, right, of spaces um, where, you know, we can, that are, that are our own and, and really that were created because we, we couldn't be in some of these other spaces, right? These white spaces, you know, we, we weren't allowed to attend. Um, and so that's why you, you saw historically black colleges and universities popping up all over the nation because we weren't allowed to attend the white institutions. And so, um, I do think that, you know, that we should take advantage of, you know, HBCUs, and spaces, black spaces. Um, but I think that in, in in all spaces, you know, we need to make sure that there's equity for all, right? Because if not, um, we'll continue to see the problematic um, trends, the dismal trends that we see um, in success, uh, particularly in white spaces. Um, so I think that, yes, I think that we should have you know, black spaces where we can definitely take advantage of. But I think that we also, um, we should be able to, to thrive in spaces that weren't created for us, um, that, you know, it should, that, that shouldn't continue to be a thing. You know, we should do our due diligence. We should make sure that folks can come. You know, we talk about diversity. You know, we talk about, how you know everybody thrives when there's diverse uh, populations, people from diverse backgrounds um, are there exchanging ideas and you know teaching one another about our different cultures and backgrounds. Um, but we don't do a good job of cultivating that space and and ensuring that it's um, that that message is delivered and ingrained throughout the fabric of the university or the workspace. So one of the things I like about a podcast is like, as a host, sometimes I get opinionated. So I let y'all know I get opinionated at times, but this is also just good dialogue for us to kind of have these conversations. And again, Jerry, one thing I want to ask you though, is, you know, as a faculty member, particularly at a university, you know, whose responsibility does this fall on, you know? And I'm trying to think about like, Oh, Let me ask you, just to ask you, whose responsibility does that fall on to ensure that, you know, our kids have equity in these spaces? Yeah, it to me, it falls on everyone from the college president to um, administrative assistants, faculty and classrooms, um, student affairs professionals who are, you know, uh, in that in student activities and um, in those spaces, working with student groups um, to cultivate and, and to make sure that um, these spaces are are equitable, that they're that they're welcome, they're welcoming, that they're inclusive of everybody, right? Not just black folks, um, but you know, everybody can come into that space and, and be included, be embraced. You know, we we try not to uh, look at difference, you know, and, and acknowledge differences, but, you know, that's 
we have to, we're all different. And so we have to acknowledge it um, and, and not acknowledging it has clearly gotten us nowhere. So, you know, we have to embrace it, acknowledge it um, and make sure that everybody can, can thrive and, and feel like they're supported. So, you know, in classrooms, they shouldn't feel like um, even though I'm, you know, maybe one of, you know, a few or a few um, in this sea of, of white folks, of white faces, um, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't experience racism. They shouldn't have to experience racism in micro, well, I, I won't even call it microaggressions. They shouldn't have to experience violence from their professors, you know, folks who are over them, who are teaching them, who are, you know, instructing them and supposed to be imparting knowledge to them. They can't even get to the learning because, you know, they're, they're having run-ins with their professors or their peers in classrooms and professors aren't speaking up and saying, no, we won't tolerate racism or we won't tolerate all these other forms of oppression um, in, in learning spaces. You know, even so, so to answer your question, I think that it's um, everyone, everyone's responsibility in, in a university or an institution. So one of the things I've been very critical of, and I've said it on this podcast, too, is, you know, the Harvard Business Review, the McKinsey's, all these places that come out with these studies for how to increase racial equity in business and in universities, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm looking at the people publishing this stuff and I'm like, you guys don't even have black people on your staff. You know, mm -hmm. you don't even have any black faculty at your universities. So then I ask you, you know, as an educator, you know, how do we ask these spaces to create uh, safe spaces and equity for our students when they don't even have it within their own faculty? Well, so you have to make sure that you have <laughs> black faces and, you know, diverse faces um, in these spaces to, you know, to bring those different perspectives to help you um, know how to create equity, right? To, to know how to support um, black students, to support Latinx students, to support indigenous students we have to have people who look like who share cultural backgrounds and experiences lived experiences with the folks that we're serving you know it's it's hard for me um and it's hard for all of us to know um the the plight and the lived experiences outside of our own right but we can get we can we can get the perspectives of those who hold those lived experiences, who have had, um, you know, to to be black and to be woman and to be, you know, to be low um, SES, all, you know, all of their life. Like we we need to know what those experiences are like so that we can serve. Um, and, and there's something to be said about. Folks connecting with people who look like them. And it, 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 that, that doesn't mean that they can only connect with folks who look like them, but, you know, sometimes that's the, the, the way in to, to know and to be able to understand. So you have to have your, your staff, the, the people who are serving, you know, and trying to help you create this equity have to look like 
have to be different, you know, than white, male, cisgender, you know, um, people. At a lot so, of at a lot of these institutions where you did your research, did you see them making just as much strides or trying to make just as much strides on the faculty as they were creating these communities, you know, for the students? You know, I didn't, that wasn't a, um, a focus of my research when I went in. Um, I, you know, I can only speak to uh, the experiences that I have now as a faculty member, but um, I will say at, at my current institution, I feel like that there is that emphasis. And I feel like one of the only, you know, one of one of the reasons that that emphasis is there is because we have a president of color. We have a, a, a president who's a man of color and who is committed and devoted to um, changing the outcomes and the landscape, the culture uh, and the climate of our institution. And so he, you know, is is adamant about uh, that push in faculty to make sure that, um, and administration, because while this is a small university, you know, it, we have a lot of black folks who are in leadership, you know, and some, so, to be honest, I love it, but it's not lost on me that there are folks who don't love the fact that there are black faces in leadership in upper, um, administration you know, at our university. So, um, yeah, I think that not all, you know, but I think it's just, it's about your leadership. It's about your leadership and what you are committed to, what you are committed and devoted to outside of diversity plans or putting things on paper to say, oh, well, we value diversity. Um, we, we, you know, we value equity. We want, you know, uh, we, we support inclusion. But though each of those words mean different things. And, you know, it's, it's not enough to, to have diversity, equity, um, or, or to have diversity and inclusion. If you, if folks don't feel aren't receiving equity and, and these spaces aren't, um, oppressive to certain groups. I'll tell you, man, when I think about you, when you're going to A&M, right. And I didn't even know what this was at the time. I didn't know I knew you had all these faculty around you, you know, the black professional uh, student organizations and the black staff and all that at A&M. But at the time, I didn't realize that, man, these 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 people you surrounded yourself were really kind of pouring into you because I didn't even know anything about. I still don't really know much about the academic path. You know, I just knew I got my master's like, OK, but like all this other stuff, the dissertations and the theses and all that kind of stuff. I just kind of looked up YouTube and was just kind of figuring out. But you had people around you that were already kind of like cultivating you, letting you see what's possible. And, you know, I think about Arthur. Right. right? Like I didn't know uh, Dr. Watson like you did, but I knew of him through you because I knew every time I saw you, we were linking up with him, you know, and I started thinking about some of the other staff there. And how powerful that had to be for a young black man at a university. And we were only, you were only a small pocket, but I just constantly remember you taking me to events where it was like the black professional, whatever organization at a and I'm like, this is a thing. Like, I didn't even know. Well, and, and let me say this. Um, so my first two years, I didn't have any of that. And that's, you know, that's why I think I struggled. Um, so academically, you know, I thought, you know, 
<laughs> coming out of high school, I thought I was I was sharp. I was, you know, I was on it, but I didn't know how to be a, co- a good college student. I didn't know how to, you know, I didn't have to study in high school. You know, I it just, it, you know, I, I could retain things and, you know, it high school, it just came easy to me. But in college, it was a different beast. Um, and I felt like I was not prepared in the ways that I should have been. So, yeah. And, and really, I, I think it was, all, it was only through my church that I was connected with, you know, with Arthur, with um, Leslie and Leslie Ann and Tia, um, who, you know, I, I always give them kudos because they really did uh, change my trajectory. I mean, they were really just connecting me with different people in the university. I mean, scholarships. I mean, doors just started opening when I met them. And so I, yeah, (laughs) had I not come into contact with them, I'm not sure what my, you know, what my path would have been like. And that, that, that theme has kind of been present um, throughout my entire educational journey. You know, when I got to the University of Louisville, um, you know, there were not black faculty in my program who were doing the research that I was wanting to do. And so I came across, um, fortunately, there was a young lady who was, um, she was also a graduate assistant in my office and we worked together. So she knew what research I wanted to embark on. And so she just so happened to be somewhere on campus and heard um, a black man, um, my mentor, Derek Brooms, uh, talking about his research. And she was like, oh, like you're doing the research that my friend wants to do. And so she connected the two of us. And he poured into me um, more than I ever could have imagined. Um, and so, you know, it's that that theme is present throughout my educational um, journey. And so, you know, just think about the the black folks who don't who aren't connected um, to folks who are invested in their success, who want to see them win, you know, who are not. Um, yeah, who just who just want to see them win at the end of the day, you know, who are not trying to throw all these barriers in their their way to success. So when I think about when we're coming up, right. And it's, it bothers me till this day when people say it, right? Because I think it's one of the reasons I want to leave Texas in the first place, or at least want to go out and go to college and everything. You'll meet sure. people when you're young, you're like, man, how you doing? Man, I'm just making it, just making it. You know, everybody just making it, just making it, right? And then I think about here we are, right? Graduated college, got our, ma- I got my master's, you got your PhD, right? But when I think about a lot of young men I meet still here in Newark, you know, working at St. Benedict's Prep, whatever else, it's the other side of the professional degrees. You know, it's like, oh man, I want to escape the hood. I want to escape all this stuff. And then you go to college and then you get your degree. And then it's kind of like, like now what, you know? And this idea of like, maybe education is going to solve everything for us. It's going to solve a lot for us, but it's not going to solve everything. And so I'm curious to hear, cause me and you had this conversation, you know, just amongst us about, you know, the challenges too, for black men after they go through all that. You know, and now they're kind of getting hit into the real world. And what are some of the things you see? Because I think that peer group you're talking about and the stuff you came out with research, I think that's just as important, if not more outside of college as it is uh, going through it. Yeah. And why is it? You know, why do we why do we need, you know, those types of support is because we live 
in a country and in spaces that um, are are <laughs> against us from the beginning. You know, they they're meant to oppress us and suppress us. Um, and so, yeah, even, you know, as we've gone through and, you know, the educational um, pathway, you know, we've obtained a level of success when it, you know, success in quotes, um, you know, that everybody was telling us to, to seek after. Um, and then you still are reminded that, yes, education does open up doors, but for a black man, for a black woman, you know, there are still these barriers that we have to face, you know, because of the discrimination, you know, because of the oppression, the violence that we, you know, that we experience in this country. You know, I was, when I was working at St. Benedict's, man, he used to always break my heart, right? Because I lived on campus with 70 teenage boys and I would try to pour in them. I would try to give them stuff that's going to make them successful regardless. Like these are like certain principles, you know, be a good person, have a strong peer group, all this kind of stuff. And I would see these guys, man, and they would go off to college and they go to a good university. But then what happens? They come back to Newark, you know, and everybody has this feeling of like, not everybody, but a lot of these kids will have this feeling of like, they're going to come back this conquering hero that they made it. But then life really hits, you know, you come back and it's like, now you're in the real world, brother. Like, now what? How are you striving? How are you standing outside a pack? And I see some of them, I see it break a lot of people too. You know, this feeling of just being kind of stuck in place, whatever. And so, you know, for me, when I think about mentorship and making people, I've, my views have just changed so much about like what success means and what role college plays in that. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, for a lot of us, um, college is, you know, when, when we're growing up, um, you know, our families kind of talk to us about, um, you know, and we see the struggles of our family, right? So then it becomes a burden on us to try to um, overcome, right? To overcome our environments, to do better than, you know, what statistics say, you know, we can or cannot do. And so then it becomes a burden that you try to get, you, you, you go to college, um, you know, you go to the league, you, you do all these things to help your family to, to then go back um, and get your family out of that environment, you know, for a better life. Um, and so it, you know, that burden is heavy. It's a heavy one, you know, and it, it can get a lot of people stuck, you know, when you go back home and, you know, you kind of settle back into, you know, or you're trying to help, you know, other people make ends meet, you know, and now you have all of this debt, you know, that, that you incurred when you went to college. Um, and so you're trying to pay that. So you, you know, you're back in the, and, and really I would argue that you, you maybe never left the cycle of, um, just trying to make it, just trying to get by, just trying to, um, deal with the cards that you've been dealt um, based on your skin color, based on, you know, where you grew up. Um, and all of these things aren't, you know, we, we often blame ourselves and we often blame, you know, black and brown communities for, um, 
you know, our own circumstances and situations. Um, and so folks say, well, why don't you just leave the hood? Well, but my family is in the hood. You know, and, and let's talk about why the hood was created, why the hood is what it is. You know, the, the role of the U.S. government in creating and segregating um, and creating these communities where folks are, you know, just preyed on, preyed upon. I was, you know, so those are, you know, we we have to interrogate and, you know, and to, to look critically at all of these things, you know, that, that are present in everyday life, you know? It's, and you know, it's funny, it had this, it's good to have this kind of conversation too, because, you know, in this age of post Barack Obama presidency and stuff, you know, people see us with the shiny degrees and everything. And like, you've already made it, you know, but they don't realize for every one of us, you know, there's a hundred other black men in the graveyard who are never going to be able to get to where we are. And what you talked about that sense of like, man, some people feel like they've never left. You know, I've been very blessed, which is why I do this platform too, is I didn't have to pay for college. Now I had to pay by getting shot at in Afghanistan. You know, I earned it that way. But in a yeah. sense, I think about my peers that own all this, all this debt, you know, and they're still trying to take care of their families and they're trying to take care of their stuff. And they're like, but I thought this was going to be different, you know? And yeah. so this conversation we're having now is on the other side of that. You know, it's one thing about the come up, but now you're on the other side of it. It's like, what is life like for a lot of people, a lot of young black men like ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where, um, you know, our educational system and our country fails us. Right. Because we're told, oh, go to college, go to college, go to college. You know, it's that's the the one of the means right to uh, upward mobility. Right. To to greater opportunity. And then we go. And, you know, we we aren't fully educated around, you know, all that it takes to, to go to college and, you know, what that means. So, you know, if you're not educated, you'll make, you know, decisions based on your lack of education or, or lack of knowledge. And, you know, those can can be wrong decisions or not the best decisions to set you up. Um, you know, and, and when I look at, um, you know, some of my white peers who were able to go, like their parents were able to pay, you know, for them to, to go to college. Um, so they didn't have to take out loans and, you know, stuff like that. Um, it just, it's, it's very frustrating, but it, you know, it, it's very telling of the state of our educational system in our our country that's one of the reasons why i've been the starting to push back against you know public education um just in a sense of like i think we need to take that education back you know and what is the purpose of being educated i mean you think about guys like us when we're coming up man you know the blend university the community colleges that people used to go to so they could go for cheap you know and then they what did all our to be honest a lot of our white peers didn't get into texas a m right out of uh, Bryan high school right many of them didn't get in but you know what a lot of them did? They went to community college and they just yeah. had a freaking pipeline. Just boom. That's just mm -hmm. what they did. I feel like every time I look up on social media, somebody I went to high school with end up graduating from A&M, you know, and they might have not had the grades right away, but they had a pipeline. You know, meanwhile, you know, us and I had, you know, the talented tith kind of mindset. We got to go off. We got to go to the best school right away. We got to do this. Right. 
racking up all this debt just to say, oh, I'm, I'm better than you. Or this, you know, I get the little button on my lapel and it says certified, whatever. But in yeah. reality, it's like, man, are we running the, the wrong race? And who was telling us to run this race in the first place? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that's where where privilege and power come, you know, into play. Like, you, you know, a lot of our peers, they already had, like you said, this this pathway, th these opportunities that basically were theirs, you know, if they didn't, you know, get a college education, like b before they even graduated, they had these opportunities. We, on the other hand, didn't have, you know, and that's not to say that all black folks don't, but, you know, when you when you look across the spectrum, right, um, it just you know, it, the reality of it is, is that we don't have that. And why don't we have that? Because of the way that, you know, black labor, um, you know, this, this country was built off of and wealth was built off of the backs of black folks, but we don't benefit from that wealth. We, we, you know, we, we haven't seen it generations. Um, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generations. Um, you know, yes, there are black folks who have, you know, had wealth, um, you know, and, and have been able to pass it down. Um, but when you look across um, black folks in general, the black population, that wealth and that, you know, being able to pass those things down um, is not as widespread as it is when you look at white folks. I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, man. And I'll tell you, one of the things I miss being around you is I feel like we come from, again, the same cloth, you know, but I find myself these days around a lot more elitism amongst black people, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, they'll go to the best school or whatever and still be stuck, you know, Versus, you know, we see white people go to A&M. I mean, I have friends, I have black peers that, because we don't like with shit on A&M, that shit on Rutgers, that shit on these state universities because they're not, you know, uh, University of Pennsylvania or they're not Harvard or they're not Yale or whatever. And for me, I've always felt this cognitive dissonance with that. I'm like, I just don't get it. You know, and me as an entrepreneur, I move around. These white parents can send their kids wherever. They're like, he's good. <laughs> You know, they they go to, you know, the Hofstra's of the world and the Manhattan colleges up here in the Northeast or the Rutgers. And the, they love the state schools. You know, when I see a lot of us fall in this trap of trying to go to these elite universities just for what? So somebody can tell us that we're great. Well, you know, we fall into it, but it's not something that we created. We didn't create, you know, elitism. Right. So in higher education, you know, you have these these top tier schools. And really what it is, is it's a um, it, it's based off of white superiority, you know, of trying to um, basically trying to make it to this level of success, um, status, you know, uh, wealth you know, riches, whatever, whatever it is, um, you know, it's all of that is in place. Um, and, and it's an issue because it not only affects, you know, it affects all of us because we, we buy into those things. We buy into that elitism. We, we buy into, you know, 
the standard of success, which is which is white, you know, and white wealthy and and all of these things, you know, you could list a, a bunch of things. Um, and so we fall into that trap, you know, and, and that's why it's so important for me that I do the work that I do um, to help people get educated around like, let's, let's, this stuff doesn't make sense. You know, like you, you said, it, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't serve us well. So why do we keep giving into it, falling into it, you know? I'll tell you, man, I have, uh, if you haven't been able to tell, I've become a fan of the Africa-centered education, right? I'm still in the process of kind of learning about it, you know, like the Montessori schools and all this kind of stuff. But the idea of education for the self, you know, African-centered education is just that being centered. You question everything. Why is something names a certain way, you know? Um, and what is, what does education mean? You know, it's like at the end of the right. day, as an entrepreneur, I need to figure something out. So I'll open up a book. I try to solve an issue and then I monetize it or I fix it or I fix my business. But it's like all the stuff we're learning in school, like how is it helping particularly, you know, what we've seen now in this economic depravity from the pandemic and all the other challenges we face, you know, how are we educating? How are we ensuring black people are able to survive and thrive through education? Well, we're not. You know, the the that's my short answer to it, um, you know, from, from a public standpoint, we're not because the, the very things that we teach in our schools. Those things aren't preparing folks for real life after. High school, you know, there are things that I learned in my master's and my doctoral program that I wish I would have learned in high school. You know, they, as I'm teaching courses um, around, you know, the issues that we're talking about, my students say to me, Dr. Jury, we like we're so angry that we didn't learn this stuff much sooner in life. And that is the the there's an intention behind that. There's purpose behind not teaching, not educating, not giving folks the tools that they need. Um, because when you, when you educate folks, when you change people's minds and shift their thinking, things have to change. And we as a country, we have wanted things to change because if we can keep things status quo, then those who are in power, those who are benefiting, those who, you know, have all the wealth get to maintain it. And those down at the bottom continue to stay in their place. And, and really, our educational system is about maintaining the status quo, oppressing the oppressed and advantaging, you know, white folks. I think about when we're in AP classes, right? I'm, I'm a reader now. I read, I, I lay down, I'm reading like three, four, five different books, right? But I would have never known I was a reader in high school. You know why? Because when we were in those AP classes, what were they making us read? Tessa D'Urbervilles. I'll never forget The Awakening. All these mm -hmm. Victorian literature books. And me and you are like the yes, only two black- that don't resonate. Yeah, the only two black males in the classroom, right? And, and like, why am I reading about Victorian literature? Like, if we really think that it's going to draw me in, like, is this helping me survive or thrive? Right. The honest answer is no. 
And so what did it do? I basically went through high school without ever really reading a full novel. I just read the cliff notes. I just draw this stuff. And it wasn't until I get older, you know, that I start coming across these books, the autobiography of Malcolm X and all this other stuff where I was like, yo, I can dig this. And then it pulls me in. Yeah. And then, but yeah. entrepreneur, I'm always seeking, I'm always learning. So I'm constantly reading. But I think about like, was that ever going to be the responsibility of whoever puts these curriculums together to make sure I, as a black male, am educated and know how to survive? Well, no, they don't want you to. They, they don't want you to. Um, you know, we have a very cookie cutter um, type of curriculum, approach to curriculum. Um, and it's to really to, to create these narratives and this history um, that celebrates white folks, white heroes, white saviors, um, and diminishes everybody else, right? You will get, you know, in February, we'll get, you know, Black History Month, and so we'll learn about, you know, these, these the same names of folks who, you know, were fighting um, on the front line um, and, and really not all the people that were fighting on the front line, right? Because there are so many names that, you know, we don't learn about in school um, outside of the MLKs and the Rosa Parks and, you know, those folks. Um, but it's very strategic. It, it's, it's very strategic. Um, it's not meant to educate um, and to liberate folks and to bring them into the full knowledge. Um, and so that's why you, you go through school and, you know, we, we see the um, some of the issues that we see in education around black male, young black males, um, you know, having issues in the classroom. And, you know, teachers are like, well, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to learn. Well, look at the, the books that you're, you know, to your point, look at the books that you're having them read. There's nobody in that book that, that represents them, looks like them, has their same lived experience. And so, you know, if we, if we were to bring black authors, black voices, um, indigenous voices, uh, you know, Latin voices into, you know, our schools, folks would see themselves and then they would, they would be more, uh, open to learning and to exploring and to, you know, to being educated. Um, and, and I, I keep saying that educating quotes cause, you know, what we call education is not actually education. You know, it's indoctrination. Like it's, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you're not really achieving, you're not helping people come into the knowledge, the true knowledge of, you know, things that'll, that'll help them be successful later in life. And if we, so if we know these things as people of color, black people, I'm gonna say black people for this one, right? And we're no, in the post-George- don't, don't, don't just say black people. Yeah. Because it's all of us. It's all right? of us. Yeah. But in this um, George Floyd era, you know what I'm saying? It's just in a sense of like, we know this, right? We know they're not going to educate our children on this stuff, right? We know they're not going to have agency. We know we're not going to, they're not going to feel, um, what's it? They're going to have that racial equity, right? So if we know these things, why do we keep sending, why do we keep trusting other people to educate our kids, you know? Because we don't have the, all of the tools to be able to create our own. You know, we do have some tools to create our own, but when you think about when you have um, struggling parents who aren't college educated, 
who are stuck in these these jobs just trying to make ends meet, you know, and, and you can know these things, but not be able to do anything about it. And so that's why we see, you know, we continue to see some of the same issues because folks are stuck in these situations and it's not because of, you know, the, the bad, any bad decisions that they've made. It's just, you know, we have a, a society that's not equitable for people and it, it, you know, oppresses folks and it lifts some folks up. And so we have to work two and three times as hard just to achieve you know, in some cases, half of what our white counterparts, you know, can achieve without a college education or without, you know, doing all of the work that we do to get, you know, not even to where they are. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, it's, 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 it's essential that we know you know, these things and how these systems work, um, you know, how racism works, how sexism works, how, you know, uh, homophobia and sex, or, uh, heterosexism and all of ableism, all of these, these forms of oppression, um, it's important for us to know how they work, um, to understand people's plights and where they are in life. And, you know, it, we, we, we have to know all that. I'll tell you, um, so, you know, you talk about the people because I was wondering this. I go to I read, I go to the bookstore and I'm like, man, there's this gap. There's like black leadership. It's like Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks and then this giant gap. And then it's like you got a Colin Powell in there. And I'll start scratching my head, man. Like, where are the black scholars and leaders? I didn't even know, Jared, that a lot of these, you know, when we we're growing up, the black bookstores, you know what I mean? The people that used to be setting up off the beaten path. I look I used to look down on that stuff. I didn't even know that these scholars were trying to write really good stuff to move us forward as a people that went against the mainstream. And because yeah. of that, they didn't have funding. They were ostracized and they exactly. literally had to self fund their research and print their books and everything. Yeah. And now I'm just like, man, where have I been? I should have been devouring this stuff. You know, the Dr. Amos Wilson's, you know, a uh, big fan of Claude Anderson. He's got all kinds of books, man, got all kinds of degrees. And then uh, today, before prepping for this interview, I was listening to Dr. Uh, Jawanza Kunjufu. Um, mm. And one of the things he, he talked to us about the black peer group, but listen to this. He says in an interview that for education, right? 80% of teachers are white females, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the us as a people, black people. We're relying our survival and our education on white females, right? I'm yeah. not knocking white female. I'm just saying, but people that don't necessarily come from the communities that we come from. We're, we're outsourcing the education of our community to others, which is why I'm yeah. such a proponent of taking that power back and saying, Hey man, we need to educate ourselves. We need to support black institutions and we need to, we need to pour. We can't expect other people to pour into us about ourselves. We need to take that responsibility. Well, I would argue that we do need to take that responsibility, but we can rely on other people, not necessarily to be on the front line teaching, but we definitely need other folks dollars. We, we definitely need funding from other folks. Um, if folks are really about dismantling and creating equity for black and brown indigenous folks, you know, in this country who have been marginalized, oppressed, repressed, you know, like, 
you you have to yes it it starts with us and we should lead initiatives um you know to take back and to educate our own um but we can't do it alone is my is my opinion going back to your work with you know black males in college and higher education i want to ask you this question too one thing i've become aware of we always compare ourselves through a lens of whiteness you know mm-hmm. that my success is always compared to a white person right but versus sometimes looking at progress and just looking at an individual for the sake of that individual. You know, guys like me and you, we have moved very far in life. You know, the distance is not even equal to a lot of other people, but we would never know that if we always look at ourselves compared to someone else, you know? And so I'm wondering, you know, how have you seen basically the, the, the men you've come across or students you've worked with go through that process themselves of, not necessarily always comparing them through a lens of whiteness. Well, I think that, you know, these, these spaces, um, these black spaces, whether, you know, they're institutions or um, programs within historically white institutions um, that support blackness and culturally affirm and, you know, uh, black folks. I think that those are spaces where we can, celebrate and highlight, you know, being successful and making it right. And, you know, our, our accolades, um, I think that we can do that, but we can also, and, and when I look at and compare, uh, you know, the graduation rates, you know, the success rates in college to, uh, white men and women, it's to, show the inequity in how we're we're underserving and we're failing you know a, a population of of a subpopulation of people of, of students on our campuses and in our you know our educational system and so i think that i think that we should do both i think that you know we we highlight the the uh, the inequity and also lift up individuals accolades um, but but also not let them be representatives for the entire race, right? To celebrate their individual accolades and say this is a successful black man who has done X, Y, and Z, and and we don't and we leave it right there. Same, and we should also do the same, you know, when um, for the folks who aren't, you know, pursuing education the folks that we would look at and say, oh, they're bad representatives of the race. No, we should treat them as individuals who have made the decisions that they have made or are, you know, have those circumstances, but we shouldn't force them and and lift them um, or make them representatives of the entire race of people. And that's how we get to, you know, categorizing and stereotyping and, you know, um, creating these, this exceptionality of, oh, well, black folks don't do this, but he's one, he's one who made it. You know, Mike is, Mike Sedman is one who made it. Or, you know, look at Jared, he's, he's one who made it. So what, what was special about him? No, let's just celebrate the fact that, you know, there were opportunities that, you know, were given, you know, that, that allowed us to get to where we are, but that doesn't mean that we have to be 
representatives of the entire, you know, black race or, you know, even our families. People don't understand how exhausting that is. Yeah. You know, uh, feeling like you have to be carried away to the world every time you move in a space because you're one of one, you know, and I struggle with it in the Marine Corps. And, you know, part of me doing this platform is also me shaking that, you know, I tell people like, I don't speak for everybody. I speak for Mike Stedman. I have opinions, right? right? But this is my truth, right? You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. A lot of stuff I think I'm right about, but this is, this is my platform. And so I share that. And uh, I think you're right. The sense of like, let's just acknowledge people as an individual and not necessarily yeah. have them carry the whole race, of the world. And, you know, I'm going to have you on probably for another episode to talk about this, but I get a lot of peers that push back against the Tyler Perry's of the world and the people that make us look bad, you know? And it's just like, who are you to tell, you know, not everybody is going to be us with the degrees and stuff, you know, we We got individuals, we make individual decisions. And so it, you can't connect um, and, and generalize really is what it is generalize an individual's actions or their decisions to an entire race of people. We're not a monolith. One thing I want to ask you before I let you go too is uh, obviously, right, we're still in the midst of this pandemic and it's raised a lot of questions about the return on higher education. Um, You know, you got a lot of university, a lot of students are upset about doing their classes online and, you know, still having to pay $3,500 per, you know, class, et cetera, et cetera. We also know that uh, I'm an entrepreneur, so I look at statistics, you know, 41% of black businesses ceased earning income once the pandemic hit, right? So every time one of these recessions or something hit, they say, oh, you know, 50% of black wealth was wiped out and it wasn't a lot. I say that to say, right, we're in a precarious situation from an economic perspective of black people. And I've said this on this platform, I'm worried that black America is headed towards a permanent labor class that is going to have to get subsidized by the federal government. Um, in this age where everybody's going online, technology, a lot of jobs are going away and they're never coming back. For the black community that's looking at higher education and saying, hey, is there questionable returns on it? You know, this idea that I'm about to go rack up 100K in debt to get a job that pays 30K a year and still, maybe if I didn't even go to a good school, you know, what is a good school in the first place? Like, my university at William Patterson doesn't hold the same weight as, you know, Harvard, but yet I'm still having to pay, you know, $50,000 and $60,000. And so I say that to say, I'm curious to hear your perspectives on the future of black men and women in higher education. Well, you know, I think the, the beautiful thing is higher education needs us. And so, you know, higher education is going to, higher education in in our country is going to have to really, and I think that all that we're seeing now, um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's been a slow progression, but I think that if we are to get to a better place, right, to get over what we're experiencing right now, because really, you know, the pandemic is just, putting a a microscope on, you know, these issues that have been there, right? Um, It's just, you know, it's just exacerbating that a little bit. Um, And so I think that higher education as well as this country is having to come to grips with who and what they've been and how they have 
um, oppressed and just put pe position people in such a, a, a terrible place um, in, in life and in our institutions that we're going to really have to evaluate. Do we, now that we know these things, right, the pandemic and other, you know, other things in our, you know, in our country um, is it, allowing us to see and not to ignore some of these issues, right? And so I think that the, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic that the, the future of black men and women within higher education and within this country um, is gonna be bright because they need us. You know, we bring such a richness. Um, they've never been able to, this country, uh, higher education has never been able to sustain, um, be sustained without black and brown folks. And so I'm very hopeful um, that <laughs> we're not going anywhere and it's incumbent upon uh, our society as well as our institutions to do the work, to make sure that those who, who have been marginalized and oppressed are embraced, celebrated, allowed to thrive. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it's at a point where it's like everybody, well, not everybody, but more people, not just, you know, us, because we've been knowing and, and screaming, you know, to folks to, you know, get out of the way of progress, right? And I think that we are at a pivotal place where folks are going to have to be moved and things are going to have to be changed in order um, for there to be a brighter tomorrow so that we don't continue to see things like we saw last week with folks, you know, storming a Capitol. Um, you know, that's, that's people pushing back. That's, that's white backlash, you know, when you feel like there's too many Black folks or too many brown folks who are participating and they're, they're, you know, on the verge of this, this equity that, you know, and we feel like we're going to have to, uh, some of, some of our piece of the pie is going to be taken away from us. So we're going to fight, um, and we're going to, you know, revolt, um, and overturn things like that's, that's just crazy. And so I think that folks will have to get out of the way. Um, and, and we'll really have to, we're having to take a critical look right now um, into who we really have been. And so I think that's gonna continue. And so I think that as people come into the know of what, what has been the, the um, situation, the plight for black folks, whether it's in education or not, we're gonna have to implement some change, some true change. What's the future hold for you and your research? What's next? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I want to, um, I just want to look at and, and be able to, to liberate through my research the least of these, the folks who have been left out, the folks who have been ignored, uh, the folks who 
yeah, just haven't been supported in the ways that they should. And they could, because we we have the resources, we have the tools, we know, we know all these things, like you said earlier. We know these things. The the things that, you know, that um I wrote about in my dissertation, some of that we've already known in higher education. It is gonna take us doing it and having the courage um and the the willingness to do it, not just to know it, to hear it, put it on the shelf. We have to enact some of these things. And so that's where I want my research to go is, you know, to to be able to highlight and to liberate um, the the folks, the least of these. Well, I'm excited to see your growth and uh, where that takes you. Now, one thing I want to give you the opportunity to do is you have people from all over the country, all over the world listening uh, right now, you know, and my audience is mainly veterans, half veterans, black, white, but we got people from all over black, white, yellow. It doesn't matter. What closing remarks would you like to leave them with, with regards to you? It could be you, your journey, higher education, whatever. I just want to give you um, some closing remarks to our audience. Uh, you know, my closing remarks would have to be when you know better, you should do better. You know, that is one thing that um, my pastor back home always says, uh, shout out to, to her. Um, and, you know, it's, it's biblical. Um, we, you know, when you, when you know better, you should do better. And so that, that is what I would leave with everybody, you know, whether that's in your personal circumstances in life or, you know, if you are in, um, a place of power, uh, you know, a position of power to work to better the lives of other people. When you know better, you should do better. Well, I appreciate you coming on the platform and spending some time with us today. Where can people follow you? How can they get a hold of you? Wow. So my email address is je Drury, my last name, D-R-U-E-R-Y at gmail.com. Um, I'm on social media, Facebook. Uh, you can find me, uh, Jared Elliott Drury. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Dr. J Drew 06. Um, yeah, that's where I can be found. Well, I appreciate, you know, my, I don't know if I'll do, I have, I've said Texan name on here. I've told people I'm going to write a book. People are like, Mike, you don't know what you're going to do. But if I ever do get a PhD in African-American history, or, you know, maybe media studies to kind of scale this pot. Cause this is important. What we're doing here using media like this in this way Absolutely. as a, as people of color is very powerful. Um, but I know when I go down that academic route, I need to plug you and reach out and uh, kind of learn your journey. So I appreciate you. And I'm uh, so glad to have you in our corner, in my corner and as a part of my network for everyone else, I need you to do us a favor and subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and relieving leaving a review on iTunes. Also, for this show, to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. You can also head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak, fill out your contact information, and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. Be sure to also visit www.realdope.coffee and place your order. We've got to start supporting our businesses, y'all. It's black and veteran owned and is the epitome of economic empowerment. 
Feel free to message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gift of Sounds Network. Rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man. Hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man. I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man. And chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man. We the original man.